Welcome to Into the Woo, a wellness podcast hosted by Alice Hu. I'll be exploring the world of crystals, energy healing, spirit guides, and more to help you understand how they can unlock your potential. These concepts have helped me discover my purpose and my truth, and I can't wait to hear how they will inspire you. I'll show you how they can be accessible and powerful tools in your life. If you enjoy the subconscious programming and diversity in wellness episode, I know you're going to love this one with Sasha Whitney. Sasha is a cycle instructor and meditation facilitator based here in the Washington, D.C. area. We met at a Carbon 38 Women's Day event earlier this year, and we kicked it off immediately as I shared my experiences in wellness and why I started Woo Woo Company with her. I know a lot of the things that I spoke about resonated with her as we both got into wellness because we felt a need for more diversity and more inclusivity. And on this episode, we dive deeper, talking about the specific experiences that we've had, you know, taking a fitness class, whether it's here in the DC area or other places, and how we felt the distinct experiences we have as women of color, how it feels to be living, working out in majority white spaces, and our experiences growing up as first-generation Americans. Yeah, so originally I started in the wellness space as someone who was just curious. I had always wanted to be in this space where I'd always always found meditate power in meditation, power in prayer, just power in centering my mind. And I wanted to be a part of that space and then reap, reap the benefits of it and see how it impacted my life. So that's how I entered it, entered the space from a client facing perspective. And then as a client in that space, I started to notice that there are not a lot of people that look like me and there are certain spaces that I didn't necessarily feel welcome in. So it's a wellness space. We're all seeking balance. We're all seeking peace. We're all seeking wellness. And it should be a space in which people should feel free to just come as they are And as I'm here in this space, I don't feel free to be who I am. And so I wanted to enter that space and create a space, not only enter that space, but create a space for people to feel comfortable coming as they are to take what they need and to be able to receive what they need without having in the back of their head, am I welcome here? Am I being judged? Am I being watched? Am I being served? The kind of feelings that I had felt at times as a client in certain spaces. Mm, and for those who might not have shared the same lived experiences, what do you mean by that? What is an example? So an example of that can be you walk into a space and you're not greeted you're not treated with a hello. You just don't feel like you're welcome there, that you're wanted there. And then you settle into the space. Um, an example that I always 
I always give this example because it's happened so frequently in my life that when it happens at this point, it's just something that I laugh, laugh off now because it's so expected. But in meditation spaces, or I'll go, I'll go into yoga studios and I'll set up my mat and I will just be ready to receive. And then I'll pop up and go to the bathroom or something. And then in the course of me walking from the studio to the bathroom or being in the bathroom, someone will approach me and ask me, just where do I find this or where do I find that? Or I'm having trouble with my locker. And the first time I thought, oh, well, maybe they just think that I'm a regular in this space and, you know, I'm just here to help, but I want to help, help, help everybody. But then as a black person, you recognize that in these spaces, you are not the norm. And when you are in these spaces, a lot of black people existing in these spaces are relegated as some kind of help, some kind of admin. When I say kind of help, maybe people cleaning the studio or maybe people serving behind the front desk. So they're used to seeing you in this space in some position of service, being of help to them and not you being of the space there to receive. So it's almost like you're not welcome in the space. And then when you wel- you are in the space and you're existing in that space, people automatically assume that you are existing in the space to help them, to serve them, not to receive the benefits of that space. And as, as I talk about this, you know, somebody will hear it and they'll be like, oh, well, maybe they just thought you wanted to help them. And that's totally fine. And that's totally true. But at the same time, being a Black woman, being a Black person, you come to understand that some people cannot recognize you as the norm, cannot recognize and see your value in a space as you being equal to them and you being there for the same reasons. They assume that you are there in a position of service to them. So that's just one example. (laughs) Most people don't realize subconscious bias and subconscious programming. I can 100% say nobody has ever asked me that in a soul cycle, in a bar class, um, in any yoga class, fitness, no one's ever asked me. Right. Nobody. And as an instructor, it's always so funny to me because it's happened. I will have my microphone on. I'll have my mic pack on. I'll be ready to go, ready to teach the class. People, I'm setting up my bike. I'm walking around saying hello to people. And then someone will approach me like, oh, are you teaching the class? (laughs) I'm like, oh no, I'm just walking around with this for fun, you know, for my own, just to play pretend. Like, no, the real instructor will be here in a couple of minutes. I'm just playing pretend. Like, why wouldn't you, why, why you would see all of these things on me and then second guess that I am teaching the class? Because again, we are not used to seeing black people in these spaces as leaders, as active participants. It's relegated to some kind of service position. Even though there are black coaches, there are black instructors, there are black wellness facilitators everywhere. It's just some people have this implicit bias and this mental block to be able to see us as having equal rights to that space as they do. I can't believe people ask you that. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it happens so often that it's like become one of the backgrounds to, you know, like 
there's so many technical issues that go on. You have to worry about the music or you have to worry about, I guess, in 2020, Zoom not functioning well. You know, you just come to expect certain things like that, in my experience, is something that I've come to expect. And it's like kind of sad that I've come to expect that. But I guarantee you, if you ask like another Black coach, they all have, we all have our stories like that because I think people just sometimes have that inability to see us as equals in that space. And I think this is what it means to be a pioneer. You are a pioneer. You know, I think there are more black fitness professionals than Asian ones. Honestly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we both got into wellness because we wanted to see ourselves in leadership roles within health, within wellness. I, every single class that, you know, I go to, whether it's in our area, in the Washington, D.C. area, or when I'm traveling, I always do a room check. Mm, yep. <laughs> I do the room check, whether it's on a bike, on a mat, you know, next to whatever it is. I always am like, so how many other, I first am like, how many other Asian girls or like Asian men are in class? And then I'm like, okay, what other pe- people of color are here? And very often, I am the only one. Yeah. It, um, that is so crazy that you bring that up because as a black woman, that is my exact experience. But then as an Asian woman where the numbers of representation are even lower, I can only imagine how rare it is to see yourself in a space. And what you said about being a pioneer, about being a leader, that's part of why I started coaching. It's part of why i sought to become a leader of wellness in this space because I wanted, I was tired of seeing myself not being represented. And then on top of that, I wanted to create a space for people who looked like me to feel like they could come into and see someone, see themselves in that space and know that they are just as, they're just as deserving of being there. And we don't have to look around and be like, oh, well, am I uncomfortable? Am I going to see anybody that looks like me? You know, that, that is so impactful sometimes. And we recognize, I think now more than ever, we are recognizing the value of representation. We're recognizing the value of sharing our spaces and not only sharing our spaces, but making sure they're welcoming to the most amount of people, to everybody, because there is so much value in representation. It's so much, there's so much value. We only learn and we only benefit from diversity and representation. And as I go further into this path, it's so crazy to me how sometimes I'm still the only. Being in DC, mm-hmm. where we boast such a diverse population, people from all different parts of the country, all different parts of the world, I can still walk into a space and be the only. And it's just crazy. As much diversity as I'm starting to see, you also realize that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. And you know what you said about you know diversity really benefits everyone, even from the biological standpoint, our microbiomes, you know, that really help us to keep healthy in the gut, you know, in our bodies. It's important that human beings, you know, not be isolated, that they encounter many people walking down the street, you know, having friends, family, people to interact with, not only for your mental state, but from a 
you know, biological standpoint, this helps with our microbiome health. <laughs> exactly. You like, you see it like not only on like a world life level, but inwardly too. And you see all of these benefits and you still, you ask yourself, why are we still in this place? It's crazy. I mean, I ask myself and I'm like, am I the only Asian girl that's staying in shape? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it and it's like I can't be. So what is it about this space that other Asian women, other black women, other non-white women of color don't feel com com comfortable being in? Because I think sometimes like there is a financial barrier to fitness. A lot of the classes are overpriced, but there are also young working professionals here, dinks like double income, no kid couples. There are people who have that financial capability to be in these spaces and they're still not here. So what is it? Because before COVID, <laughs> that's true, COVID has changed a lot of things, but before COVID, there were all of these people who had these means to be in these spaces and they weren't there. And you really wonder why that is. And I'm sure if we took like a survey of black women, Asian women, non-white women of color, sure you'd have your select few who'd be like, uh, fit wellness and fitness is not important to me or it's not a priority for me right now. And that's okay, everybody prioritizes differently. But I imagine that is not, that would not be the top reason why we would see people giving their reasons as to why they're not occupying these spaces. Yeah, it just boggles my mind. As you speak about this, I'm trying to think of um, all the different types of friends that I have, you know, in this city and other cities. And I'm like, where are they? I know they work out. Where are they working out? Yeah. Are they working out? Right. <laughs> One that's different, or I, I, I'm really thinking about these things, and I'm like, huh, I'm not sure. I'm really unsure. I mean, even when I go to, you know, a place that has like a large Asian population, like Los Angeles, albeit you know I don't stay in like the city proper. I'm in Santa Monica, Venice area. I still, I don't. I know they're there, but but they're not. I think they're in these like pockets of community and you know perhaps you and I we just find ourselves in more quote-unquote white communities yeah Whatever. And, and that could honestly be it too I live in Arlington right now and the population of I'm where I coach I coach in DC but I also coach in Arlington and I used to coach at Falls Church and the black population in those areas it's not alarmingly high but it's also there are a bevy of other minority groups. I, I, I really don't like that word, P.S., minority groups. I think there is power in language. And I think that the word minority, I know a lot of people don't see anything wrong with it. And on its face, I, you know, it's a word that we use. It's common language. But when you start to research that word, there's like power in language. And I don't like using that word. So I will say there's a lot of other non white people of color, or sorry, non-black people of color, rather, non-Asians. And we still don't, there's a large Asian population, there's a large Indian population, there's a large Latinx population, and I still don't see them in these spaces here. So again, if we were to poll all of them, 
I'm sure their top answer wouldn't be interest of fitness and wellness is not my thing. So it's like, what is prohibiting them from being in those spaces? I'm really not sure. I, I, I've thought about it. I've spoken it about it to a couple friends here and there, but never uh, really asked people and say, Hey, why don't you like soul cycle? Or why yeah. do you like this other class? I mean, I say soul cycle because every time I go in there, there's literally just like, <laughs> like people of color. Right. <laughs> and it's like, it's, I, I feel like it's almost ubiquitous, you know, like we know like big names in fitness and, you know, SoulCycle is a big name in fitness, Pure Bar, big name in fitness, Equinox, big name in fitness. So these places like just like serve as examples for everywhere, you know, in the fitness industry and in the wellness industry, these big names, I think they're applicable to smaller in spaces as well. It's just these ones that we know because of just they're so ubiquitous in our culture that we just know their names and they're easily recognizable. Yeah, I mean, they're venture back. So, you know, I feel like fitness is just like where food and beverage is going to, to a certain extent where there's just a lot of big names. They're venture yeah. And what does venture back mean? Venture back usually means like the founder is going to be male and the founder is going to be white. Mm-hmm. So that perpetuates into many areas, you know, of our, of our lives in our society and fitness um, is one part because I don't see uh, many boutique studios. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because the boutique studios that I have worked out, all of them with the exception of one have been owned by white men. So Again, even like these venture back studios, for sure, they are, you know, owned by white men, led by white men. But even in smaller spaces, with the exception of one. Yeah, I'm not like thinking about it. Yeah. The exception of one. All of them were spaces that were owned and led by white men. You know, there is a studio that I work at that, well, I guess the exception of two. Yeah, so we'll go with two, <laughs> which is an anomaly. But for the most part, a lot of them, like you said, you look back to the ownership, it's almost like connect the dots. It starts at the top. And when you look at the top, you can easily see why the structures fall into place at the bottom as they are. Yes, it's very much so a trickle down. And it's almost stuff that you don't even realize until you really take a look and really be mindful and aware of like, oh, maybe this is why things are the way they are. Because yeah. everyone who's able to open a fitness studio is white and yeah. it stems from white privilege and generations of, you know, wealth and opportunity that, you know, other people haven't been able to have. And I agree with you. I also really don't like the word minority. I don't like the word, uh, the term like people of color. Like I don't like any, yeah. honestly, like when you talk about global population, I am the majority. Right. <laughs> That's the crazy part. And it just lend it to what I'm saying. There is power in language. So, so when you say the word minority, it's, minimizing. It's a dim diminishing kind of word to put you in a secondary place. But when you do the math and, and to make you like not appear as the norm, 
you know, the, not the majority group. But then when you do, well, like you said, when you do the math, it's like, wait a minute, I am the majority. What are you talking about minority? I'm the majority here. Like, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I remember, you know, in preparation for you know, our interview today, you and I spoke over the phone a couple of weeks ago and we spoke about what does it mean to grow up in a culture and a place where you are the majority. Yes. I know parents experienced that. I know that my parents experienced that and I was able to get a taste of it for a couple of years when I lived in China. It was mm-hmm. a very profound experience to walk around and not be judged by your race. Yes. Subjectively, you know, or, um, or it's just everyone looks like you. Right. And you just get to exist as you are. And so you're judged as just who you are or just not judged at all. You just get to be. You're in this place where you're not worried about who is looking at you as an other, who is assuming something about you, who is you know, just, it's like how I feel. Cause I exist in majority white spaces. I work in majority white spaces. I live in majority white spaces. Um, my places of socialization, a lot of the times happen in majority white spaces. So when I am in those predominantly black spaces, I just feel my body just mentally without even recognizing it. Sometimes I'm just at ease. I'm not worried about somebody projecting their implicit bias and their racism and their prejudice and their discrimination. I'm not worried about all of that placed on me. I can just be. And it's so funny when we were talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago, when my parents are immigrants and they grew up in an area where they, if you're just black there are like your experience in china that's how it was for them so there is no racism sure there's classism and there's other levels of existing in a you know in that of prejudice i guess and discrimination in those spaces but as far as the insidiousness of racism it's completely gone and so with it being completely gone it's not affecting you. You can just be. So coming here and for them having to learn that very quickly, that race is something that is going to impact you and not growing up in that space, having, had, having to have them learn it and then share it with us, it was almost like we were learning together at times and not even like learning together, but you could just see, I, I had a feeling of how crazy it was for them to have to explain that to their children because if they picked us up and moved us to another space to where they grew up, that entire conversation would be erased. And the, the, the impact of that type of racism would be completely erased. This and- is very interesting about reality. Yeah, it was not part of their reality. And they had to slowly understand and adjust when they moved into a new place that it is a, a layer of complexity in their lives now. Yes. And, it, 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 and I remember, like, I shared this with you, but I remember um, growing up and I was having difficulty with a teacher. I've always been like a very chatty, kind of talkative, fidgety kind of kid. And so it's like first grade and I was sitting there and she gave us work to do. And I got my worksheet done pretty quickly. I'm like waiting for everybody else to get their worksheet done. 
And I start talking to the kid next to me and we're just chit-chatting and doing whatever. And then the teacher is like, Sasha, this is, you know, she starts yelling at me per usual, always screaming at me. And she was like, I'm going to call your parents. So we finally had a parent-teacher conference and I, I've been telling my parents, I was like, she just does not like me. There's something about her. She just does not like me. I feel like she doesn't like me. And this is a six-year-old me. My parents know me. They know I'm talkative. They're like, well, Sasha, stop talking. Like, do your work. And I'm like, I am doing my work. So finally, they go to this parent-teacher conference, and they're listening to this woman's complaints about me. And they're like, um, they they she tells them there and she's like, well, maybe just Sasha has ADHD. Maybe that's just it. Maybe we need to move her to another class and put look into putting her on medication. And in Nigeria, there's no such thing as ADHD. Like what the hell is that? So my parents are like, no, it's not ADHD. This is just who she is. Maybe she's just bored. Maybe just trying to find different reasonings for that. And we went home and my parents are talking about this experience and they're sharing it with their friends. And they're like, has it occurred to you that what Sasha is dealing with, with this teacher is probably that teacher's own implicit bias or racism. That teacher's probably just a little racist towards Sasha. And so my parents are like, it it didn't occur to them that it could be something. It could be that because that's not the kind of experience that they had within schools in their own country. And so come to find out that that woman was just a little bit biased. She just didn't like me. And when my parents went and talked to the other, when they go to the school and they start having conversations with the principal, come to find out that this woman, there's a history behind that. I'm not the first black child she's treated like this. So you start, but if that, if my parents, if they're friends, hadn't suggested that to them. That's not something my parents would have likely thought of because it's not in their experience. And so you remove an entire experience of racism and it's just gone. It's not a reality that children have to deal with. It's not a reality that you as a person have to deal with. And that memory as young as six is so profound to me. That example is so profound to me because we see in the school system how black children are disproportionately impacted by implicit bias, by racism, and who is the main agent of leadership we see in the school system, white people, specifically white women. So I know like that was just a slight derail, but it just goes back to like the experience of when you are a minor, when you are a majority, when you're just a majority, you don't have to worry about certain things. You don't have to worry about certain experiences. It's completely erased. Yeah. And it's not a tangent. It, it's a lot of, you know, when I speak about something that I always say is that, you know, everyone is, is experiencing a different reality and your friends and your family, the people you get along with are sh- share very similar realities. People you yeah. have with, you find challenging in those relationships they have different lived experiences, beliefs, and constructs of reality, which is why, you know, we both got into wellness so that we could start shifting what does it mean to be well and who can be well. And for people to see, you know, you and I like teaching a yoga, a spin class, it, it, it starts to influence them at the subconscious level, which is why I also teach people 
be careful of what you listen to, whether it's music, um, mm. news, the media you consume. You know, I've been pulling back on the TV that I watch. And, you know, for a really long time, I loved hip hop and R&B. You know, I still do, but I'm in that phase where I'm listening to a lot more like, you know, binaural beats, salvation frequencies, because, you know, after all, this was years ago, I realized, you know, I loved these songs, but the, um, the messages that I was hearing, yes. these messages, these messages, I was like, I don't know. I listen, I listen to Lollipop by Lil Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> times a day what is that saying like over sexualization that women are sex sex objects and i'm like i love this song but what do i love about it what do i really love about it right and it's crazy because our frequency i don't and this is one of the things that i guess like woo woo things um shout out woo woo but that's um sometimes i I speak about things and when I talk about them with some of my friends or just some of the people, some of my acquaintances, they'll be like, there goes Sasha on her woo-woo, on her zen again. But I speak a lot about the frequencies that are being put out when we watch certain things, when we take in certain images. And so I think that it is so important that you are being mindful of what you are taking in as far as media consumption, because we are being programmed by what is being put out there as the norm, as acceptable. And these like music agencies or there are entire departments devoted to A&R and these entire departments are devoted to what this, this person, the celebrity, the singers, what their image is going to look like, the content of what they're going to put out, how they're going to put, how they're going to market us. We are like being, I won't, I won't say manipulated because I think to a certain degree it is manipulation, but also we all have choices and we're all making choices, but it is so important to be mindful of what we are taking in because what we are taking in are realities. It's like that question, the chicken or the egg question, what is being, are our perceptions forming reality or is reality forming our perceptions? And, you know, I have, I know people who, you know, say the same thing. Uh, or I feel like, oh, this is a little too out there. I don't feel comfortable sharing this with them. But honestly, when you truly think about it, you know, every single word, situation, relationship, job, uh, music, piece of media, it has its own frequency. It truly does. Everything has its own vibration, its own vibe, its own energy. And so, you know, I invite people to think about you know, when you think of an Asian person, what comes to mind? And when you don't know an Asian person or you are not close to a, like an Asian person, what you see is what's in the media. Yes. Controlled by just, you know, a select number of big media groups, you know, the, the people who do the research, the reporting, the sharing, they're, they're, they're of, you know, they're, most of them are cut from the same cloth. And so you begin to think like, oh, like, I think if you go through Netflix or any other streaming surface, uh, service and you say, okay, let me just look at like the, the top 10, right? The top 10 movies or shows. And let me do a scientific, uh, not a very scientific study, but just like a quick research of like, how is, you know, a person of color portrayed? What yeah. roles do they have? 
how are they showcased? Are they being uplifted? You know, like, like what type of life circumstances are they experiencing? And you know that we watch so much TV now in this day and age, especially during quarantine. Oh my gosh, yes. So how is that influencing you? Like, you cannot know what you're capable of if it doesn't exist in your reality. Like, let's say, let's say in your family, everyone was a doctor. Everyone in your community is a doctor or in science, but you wanted to be an artist. Mm. You're that different person. Yeah. It seems so much more difficult for you to be an artist because you're like, what is art school? Is is there art school? Like, you know, what is the varying types of, of art? And, oh, there are people who make a good living off of being an artist. You, you know, if you only know people who are doctors or in like science fields, that's not part of your reality. And that makes things very, very difficult. So you can imagine how that cascades to all the different nuances uh, of life, of a person, of a place. That is, I'm going to steal that because that is absolutely 100% accurate. And I I tried to say this in so many ways, but literally I'm going to use this doctor example because people don't seem to get it or maybe people are committed to missing the point. I'm not really sure at this point. I think it's probably the latter, but I'm so going to steal that because that example is so spot on. And I think that that is absolutely 100% is what is occurring in our society and what has been occurring in our society when people's circles are so insular. And I was reading this article the other day, I cannot remember the exact statistic, but it was the statistic of some large number, like 70 or 80% of white people do not have a single person in their space of color. And so these people, their realities are being informed, not by what they see, not by what they're seeing right next to them, not by friendship, not by kinship, not by any kind of relationship, but what they're taking in in the media. So if your perception is only informed by the media, we look out to the media. And what do we see depicted of Black people in the media or Asian people of the media in the media? And that's exactly what's occurring now. So being in wellness, being in fitness, my goal, because there's so often, there's so many times where I will be the only Black person in the space as an instructor or as a coach, as a client. So it's so unfortunate that I think that I think this, but at the same time, I think it's something, again, that I was informed about at a very young age when, I, when my dad would always say, my mom would say this too, but my dad more, more would say it more, be like, when you leave this house, you're not just re- representing you. You're representing me. You're representing your mom. You're representing your sisters, your brothers, your culture, your community, Black people everywhere. When people see you as a Black person, you are not given the luxury of being an individual. You are basically a token, a representation, a reflection of your race. So when I am in a space, I have to, I think about that sometimes. And I'm like, maybe I'm the only black person this person is interacting with today. So as a person, as a pride, as wanting to shine the best light I can on my racial group, on on my race, on my culture, on my community, on my mother, on my father, on my sisters and my brothers, to be the best person I can be for them and for myself 
And I'm proud of that. But at the same time, it's exhausting Mm. to have to continue to be seen as I can't be an individual. I just can't be Sasha. I'm a loud person. I'm a very talkative person. So if somebody's walking by me and I'm being myself and I'm like excited about something and I'm talking loud, somebody's not going to walk past me and think, oh, that's just Sasha being Sasha. They may think, oh, there goes the all black women are so loud. All black people are so this. All black people are so that. And I don't get the luxury of being myself. But would they think that if they walked by and saw white women behaving the same way? Probably not, you know? I think that's something that I realized. I think it was about a, a year and a half or two years ago. My boyfriend at the time, we went to the climbing gym in Crystal City. Um, I'm sure you you know where that is. The Earth. Yeah. And um, I had kind of like a, an epiphany when I was there. So climbing is a, a very spectator sport. Um, people are looking at you and seeing like, you know, what things you're climbing. And for me, I, even though climbing is actually something that I didn't realize, but it's very diverse. There's, you know, a lot of, you know, Asians who love to climb particularly engineers, people in the science field <laughs> love to climb, but that's, that's, that's a tangent. Um, but that's not something that I was really like focused on. It was like my first experience. And as you get older, you know, there are fewer, fewer quote unquote new experiences that, that you have. And especially with, um, physical activity, I didn't grow up, um, very active. And this is something that's, you know, that's a new part of me, you know, that I adopted very much so in like, early adulthood, I felt very watched. I felt like if I did, if I, I was, it's hard to explain, but because I, I think subconsciously I was so used to being like what you said, the only Asian that this person might encounter in a room, in a meeting, that it was very performance. It was very representative of like, you know, I had to be on quote unquote, my best behavior. And so, you know, when I'm doing something like climbing, especially when I'm new and I'm not good at it, I feel like all eyes are on me and I feel a lot of pressure to do well. Yes. Something. And my boyfriend at the time, um, he didn't quite understand. I mean, he grew up in Puerto Rico, he's Puerto Rican. And so he grew up in a place where people were like him. That's Mm. no. And I made that connection. Um, and so I just felt watched. I mean, people naturally watch when you're climbing, but I was just like, Oh my God, they're watching me. Am I good? Am I bad? And that's not part of climbing culture at all. If you've climbed, people want to help you, they cheer you on. But I felt that and I was like, where is this coming from? And I was like, I think this is coming from, from just being different, looking different. And I didn't make this connection of like, feeling other until I came back from China. Before China, I was like, whatever. I come from a, like a diverse like community and um, I have lots of different types of friends and, you know, race doesn't exist. I think that's also just with naivety and, you know, the, the, the places, the situations that I was in, but it was not until I came back that I began to, you know, I came back in 2015 which is just a few mm. after Ferguson, you know, kind of like all these things bubbling up um, in our culture, in our uh, society. And I came back to an America that I was like, wow, I didn't realize these things were like happening. And as I walk around and even today, as I walk around, like I, I, I do feel people, I, I, I feel like I stick out. Yeah. 
Because you're made like hyper aware of it. Like you come from this environment. Like it's it's a crazy thing about because it's like you spend your whole life here and then you go to this place where you're everyone around you looks like you and your eyes are open. And once you have an experience like that, once you see that, you can't unsee it, you know? Yeah. I tried to explain this to my parents that I said, you know, I kind of miss just being in China. And they were like, this is absurd. You're American. You were born and raised here. You spend five years in China and like you have this thought. And I'm like, it's not that I'm not proud to be American, but sometimes it's kind of nice to just relax and let your guard down and not feel like you're the odd one out. And that it feels, yes. it really feels that way. And it's something that, you know, I know that I need to condition myself to not feel that way, but it's hard. <laughs> I really do. And it's, it's difficult to explain to people, but I like to use analogies and examples and say, you know, when I was here, this is how I felt. And now that I'm here, these are the differences that I see. And I think that with each example that I share, it crystallizes, it becomes um, clearer for people. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like you're I, I haven't had the luxury thus far of being in that space where just for a continued amount of time in a separate country where I don't have to worry about a lot of the things that I worry about here. I haven't had that, you know, experience. I would love to one day because I think it just, just hearing how much you talk about it. And in the past, like how the first time we met at the carbon event and you were sharing it, it was so profound to me because I remember thinking, wow, like, I want that for myself someday, even if it's just for three weeks, <laughs> I would want that for myself because yeah. I think it is a life-changing, impactful experience. It really is. And to, to go back and spend time in Nigeria. Yeah. I don't know if you visited. If you yeah, have. we visited before. And it's so funny because even we visited there and they can just tell you're American because the way you talk or how you carry yourself but my cousins, they made fun of us. They're like, you guys are so American. And my mom's like, well, what else would they be? They have no other experience. It would be like you coming to America and then people making fun of you. Like, oh, you're so Nigerian. So <laughs> I think it like got under my mom's skin just a little bit. <laughs> I think that, you know, when you are able to spend, you know, a couple weeks there, you just begin to see what is not just something your family does, but what your society does. I saw a lot of um, cultural things. I was like, oh, this is why we eat fruit at the end of a meal, because fruit is served at the end of every meal. In mm. It was these very, very funny things that happen in just like walking around society and just seeing like, what's popular there? What do people pay attention to? What's important to them? What, what are the shared cultural values? Those are things that are, that really came up. And so I, I, I said it when I, you know, came back from studying abroad there, um, in my college years, I was like, everybody needs to spend at least a couple weeks sometime in their lifetime to get that different perspective. Yeah, I agree 100%. Hopefully someday I can have that perspective because I know it would just be life-changing. Oh, I believe it for you. I'm holding space for that. Thank you. <laughs> 
Well, I would love to know your morning and evening routine. I know you posted about it on Instagram. Uh, yes. I'm a big fan of like rituals and routines. And I love hearing about how people start and end their days. Yes. So really the major tenets of my morning, uh, the, per- the perfect morning for me that would just start off the perfect day is I just like to wake up slow. Sometimes I'll hit snooze. Sometimes I won't. Um, Generally, I feel as it pertains to the snooze button, your body knows what it needs. So if your body's telling you, I need another 10 minutes, I need another 15 minutes, you just honor that. And so an ideal morning, I wake up, I hit snooze once or twice. (laughs) And then I get up. I'll check my email. It's a bad habit, but I'm trying to get out of it. I'll check my email and then I'll set my phone to do not disturb. I'll go in the kitchen. I'll make some tea. And while the tea is steeping, I will try to do a meditation. And I found that about for me, 10 minutes is the sweet spot, anywhere from five to 10 minutes, any more than 10 minutes. I notice my mental start to get a little worried about what may come next in the day for me. So I like to meditate anywhere from five to 10 minutes. And then I'll just journal. And I've been writing since I was 12. It started off as a summer project. We were supposed to write about what we did over the summer every day. Or, you know, the goal was every day, but you were the assignment was you write at least once a week about your summer. And it's just something that stuck for me. So for years at this point, over two decades, I've been journaling. And so it's just a part of my life now. And I find that I love to write in the mornings, just get out my thoughts, maybe my dreams. I'm one of those people that generally remembers my dreams. And sometimes I'll sit here in bed and I'm like, I'll talk to my husband like, hey, what did you dream about? This is what I dreamed about. And he'll be like, it's too early because he's not a morning person. I'm a morning person. And he's kind of like, he needs a little bit more time in the mornings. Meanwhile, i just like pop up and I'm like, we're ready to go for the day. So after I meditate, I'll just write and then I'll enjoy my tea. So that's a typical morning for me. Sometimes one of those things doesn't happen. Maybe I'll only be able to meditate or maybe I'll only write or maybe I'll only just take a moment of mindfulness while I'm making my tea. But the perfect, the ideal morning that helps me with my days, I wake up, I start to steep my tea, I meditate, I journal, and it's just the best morning. And also I pray. I I really, um, I think there's power in prayer and I know prayer is not everyone's thing and that's totally okay. But I, for me, I grew up in a very uh, religious family, Catholic, uh, Christian. So for me, prayer is very important. And in the evening time, I will close my computer as one thing I need to do, I need to like have that final act, you know, like so before it was logging off and walking out of the walking out of the office. I don't get that luxury now. So in the evening, I would just close my laptop, turn my phone on, do not disturb and veg out. And just maybe it's just sitting there reflecting on the day, maybe taking a little nap. But that like the, the evening routine, it's just something as I just close my laptop and then I'm done. Bedtime routine <laughs> that I'm a huge skincare fanatic. So what I'll do before bedtime, I will floss and then I'll brush. I know there are some people who brush and then floss. That has never made sense to me. So I am a floss, mouthwash, brush kind of person that I'll do my skincare routine. And then it's bedtime. So, <laughs> so I think that we all have like our little things during the day. And those are just like my standard day my morning wake up and that skincare routine at night is so important to me. And what happens if you 
miss a morning routine? I just notice a difference in my mood, honestly. I'm a little bit more, I feel stressed that I'm rushing from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Because what mindfulness has taught me, it has been like an amazing practice I've ushered into in my life over the past two years. But over this quarantine, this quarantine has like forced me to be really mindful. And I think that we frame this quarantine in many ways, in many ways, this pandemic has, I do not want to play downplay at all the negative effects of this quarantine and how, and the pandemic and how it's impacted people's lives for the negative. But I choose, I also choose not to stay steeped in the negative and look for the positive. So the positive within this quarantine is that I've been able to really, really lean into mindfulness. So when I am thrown off balance a little bit in the morning, I struggle to capture it during the day. And so when I miss that morning mindful routine during the day, I just feel a little bit more anxious. I feel like stressed out, like emails coming in and I'm just like feeling the need to just consistently respond to things instead of just moving about my day with purpose, I'm thrown off my purpose. And so what I'll try to do is if I miss that morning routine in the afternoon, I'll try to take some time for mindfulness. So the second part of my day, the first part of the day may have gotten off to like not the best start, but I can always try to recapture it and put it back on track the second half of my day. Yeah. And that's something I really teach people. They're like, how can I feel better? How can I feel more mindful or aware or slow down? And it's my number one piece of advice. Start a morning routine and or evening routine and be consistent about it. I mean, even for myself, I'm like, oh, I got to do this every single day in the morning. And sometimes I just want to start the day, but I know that my day is better if I meditate. I don't look at my phone. If I journal, if I read something out of my um, yoga meditation book, all these different things that I do, maybe even draw an oracle card or tarot card to really help me focus for the day or for the week. These things really are for your enrichment and for your well-being. And when you start to frame it in that way, it begins to be a much easier process and a much thing, easier thing to adapt. And of course, you know, there are days you have five minutes, there are days you have 30 minutes. And I have days when I miss it too. And I really feel thrown off and I try to make it up uh, in the afternoon or an extra long evening routine. But we're just being pulled in so many directions. And, you know, I'm always looking at my phone. So I try to give myself those pockets of time when I'm not on. Yes. Uh, and I know that we were talking about that earlier. And I think that is so important. And this is something that I, I did a podcast about this earlier this week, because it's something that I feel very strongly about giving ourselves the time and the space to be disconnected. And I'm actually reading a book about it as well. Break up with your phone. And I think it's by Catherine price. Yeah, it's Catherine Price, How to Break Up with Your Phone. And it's just the beauty in 
just that comes with that just like disconnecting, taking time to just center without all of the distractions and noises and things going on. And I think with this quarantine, because so much of our lives have gone inside, people feel like we're really accessible and they're owed an immediate response or we feel pressured almost when we see a notification come through or a message come through an email, we almost feel like this immediate need to respond. And it's almost like you think about what would be the worst thing that would happen if I didn't respond to this message or if I just took the time to just disconnect just a little bit. I know. I think I need to start like instituting two days a week where I don't look at Instagram. Yeah. I've really been trying to like be more mindful of the time that I've like spending on it. I even have And if you have an iPhone, you can actually set like timers on your phone to see, yeah, to look into that feature. Like, and even on Instagram, there is a feature in their app when it will tell you if you spent, so mine is set to an hour and a half. And as soon as I spend an hour and a half on Instagram, it will, the notification will pop up and I'll say, thank you. Or I'll say, okay. And then it'll disappear. And then I will try to, now I'll get on Instagram just because of the way life is. I'll get on the Instagram sometimes afterwards, but I'm mindful that, okay, Sasha, you've seen the notification. You've spent an hour and a half on Instagram. Time to move on. And Put your phone down. <laughs> for those who are like, wow, an hour and a half, that's a really long time. I invite you to check your iPhone log because your iPhone will tell you, I don't have an Android, I have an iPhone. So sorry if you're a green bubble user. Right. (laughs) I've looked and sometimes it's like hours on Instagram, albeit I'm taking a fitness class or watching an IGTV or even um, doing an IGTV or IG live like myself. But you then begin to understand like, wow, I'm spending three hours on this platform. What am I doing? Right. And especially if you're a content creator, the time that you spend on there, it's probably increased because you're there. It's like, it's work. Like it's a part of your work. So it's just, it's incredible when you think about how quickly that hour and a half adds up. Yes. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try to, to not look at my Instagram two days a week. It's hard because it's, you know, how I run my business, how people find me. But what I, what I've been really trying to live is rest is also productive. Yes. Rest for the mind, rest for the body. Really the mental state doesn't get as much rest as it needs. Oh, absolutely. Okay. My last question is (laughs) what is your favorite quote or mantra? Oh, mine is, and if you've taken my class before, if you've taken, if you've meditated with me before, if you've taken a fitness class with me before you've heard me say this, I put it on Instagram. (laughs) It is no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you owe it to yourself to keep moving forward. And there have been so many instances of my life, things that have happened where I'm striving for something and I keep hearing the word no, or doors keep getting closed in my face. But growing up, my dad always told me what is for you shall not pass you. So I tell myself always, no matter what is going on, there's something out there for you. Mm. There's something out there for you for the taking, your, your destiny that will keep you feeling fulfilled, that you will be contributing to the betterment of this world, and you owe it to yourself to keep going after it, 
no matter what is going on, no matter how many people tell you no, how many times you get knocked off the horse, you have to keep moving forward. Because it's almost like my parents sacrificed so much. My ancestors did not, did not go through what they went through. My parents did not go through what all they all went through for me to just give up when things get hard. And I did go through everything that I've been through to just give up when someone says no. So just keep going, just keep moving forward, no matter what is going on. You just gotta keep going. I know, I needed to hear that. And can we hear that quote one more time? Yes, yes, yes. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you owe it to yourself to keep moving forward. I'd love to know what really stood out to you in this episode as Sasha and I shared our stories and our experiences. It was really quite vulnerable to share these things as, you know, these are just our experiences. They are not representative of how everybody feels. It's just how we feel that maybe you or someone else uh, has also experienced something similar. Now, I usually have a workbook, but for this episode, I want to be more action-oriented and community-focused. So if you can, sign up for a one-on-one or group fitness class led by a person of color or a woman of color, and if you want to support through promoting them on your social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, I know they'll appreciate the extra love and attention as word of mouth is really how businesses grow, especially in these service-oriented businesses. Wellness, fitness, testimonials, reviews are just so important. And I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to the podcast, sharing episodes with your family and friends. It really means a lot to me that you listen. And as always, I'd love to hear feedback, suggestions, and what you thought of an episode. Feel free to always reach out to me over Instagram at W-O-O-W-O-O-C-O.